Welcome to Preaching in Season, a series designed to help ministers in their work of reading and preaching the Word. In this episode, Bible professor Mark Hamilton leads us in an exploration of the scriptures that many churches will read on Easter Sunday, 2022. Thank you for listening. Welcome to this eighth and final in a series of podcasts on preaching in season. In this series, we explore the text that the church will hear during the season of Lent. And for this week, we have come to Easter Sunday. We've been trying to think about how these texts prepare us to clear away the rubbish in our lives so that we can fitly and rightly hear the proclamation of joy on Easter Sunday, the announcement that Christ is risen and our response, he is risen indeed, and not just long ago and far away, but is is now enthroned in glory and reigns on our behalf and and inside of us. This This announcement, which is the core of the Christian faith, is not easy, not easy to hear because there's so many parts of our lives that get in the way of hearing it well and so we've we've had to think about clearing away the rubbish sometimes that is expressed as the confession of sin the acknowledgement of real wrongdoing sometimes it's just a sense that we're confused or lost or downtrodden or that we experience despair because of some misfortune that's befallen us now there are many ways in which we need to turn as we talked about in the first lesson in this series, to turn away from the path that we're on and find find a new and better path. That's what Lent's about. It's not just about giving up things we happen to like. It's not just about remorse. It may include those things. But it's about reorientation, clearing away the rubbish so that we can hear the announcement of joy. Well, today on Easter, we hear that announcement. The texts that the church will read include, and there are some options here, Acts 10, 34 through 43, or Isaiah 65, 17 through 25, Psalm 118, 1, 2, and 14 through 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 19 through 26, or Acts 10, 34 to 43 again, and John 20, 1 through 18, or Luke 24, 1 through 12, and I'm going to mention some of these texts. I want to start with the Acts of the Apostles. You know, if you, if you read the book of Acts, it's a story about the, the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. It begins on the, in the outskirts of Jerusalem and it ends in the city of Rome. It begins with Jesus and his disciples and ends with Paul. And this is a story in which Luke tries to capture not just the bare statistics of what happened and who went where and what the reception was, but also the, the emotional response and the intellectual response of people. The doubts, the fears, the joys, the anticipations, the hopes. He captures all of that. And we, even though we move very quickly from one story to another and one character to another, we get a well-rounded picture of, of human existence as it encounters the gospel. 
So this is the story in chapter 10 of the conversion of the first Gentile, a man named Cornelius. And uh, the story is, as you may know, that Peter is down in Joppa, down the coast. Uh, Cornelius is up the coast in Caesarea. He's a Roman centurion, possibly retired since he seems to be married, or at least he has a household of some kind, and you couldn't marry while you were on active duty. But in any case, he's a man of some importance, and he has a vision, and Peter has a vision, and uh, the vision tells Cornelius to send for Peter, and the vision that Peter has tells him to open his mind once he gets the call, and he goes and sees Cornelius, and he proclaims to him the message of the good news. Now, back in chapter 2 in Acts, when Peter preached a sermon, uh, in Jerusalem on Pentecost, he had to say to the people there, look, folks, you killed the Messiah by cruel and wicked hands. You slew the Messiah, but God has made him Lord in Christ. They had created the, the king of all messes, the king of all messes. They had messed up to a degree that is almost hard to fathom, he says. But... If you turn away from that, if you repent, God is willing to receive you back. This promise is to you and your children and all as far off as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so he calls them to repent and be baptized, to receive God's forgiveness. When he gets to Cornelius, he doesn't call him to repent from heinous sins. He says that, in fact, uh, God has paid attention to you, has heard your prayers knows that you are trying to be a righteous person and therefore is now offering you something very precious and beautiful. He says to Cornelius, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And so Cornelius, because not that he's earned his salvation, whatever that means, uh, I think the, the Bible's less afraid about that than we tend to be. But it, it, he, has, he has opened himself up to the, to the presence of God. And so Peter announces to him that God is willing to receive him. How, he says, let me tell you the story. How God, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. How he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Notice that language, the sense that evil is an oppressive force, an occupying force. Yes, it might be manifested by the empire, by Rome, but of course it's much bigger than that. It takes many names. But Jesus is the one who is the ultimate liberator. He has freed, freed people from the power of the devil, which might be exorcisms and it might take other forms. But it's the language of, of liberation. He says, those folks put him to death, but God raised him from the dead. Not to all people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses and who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. 
he says to Cornelius, the invitation is to you. The good news is that, that God triumphed over death, has overcome all its power, and you have access to the liberation that God has wrought on Easter. And this is available to all. God is no respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. God doesn't put his thumb on the scales. God invites all to receive his salvation. We hear that a very similar theme in Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, near the very end of the book, in which uh, the prophet returns to the, the glorious themes of chapter 40 to 55 after taking us through some very unpleasant places and reminding us of the problems that the people of Israel experienced even after their return from exile. And so we get this, we get this language about, I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Now, that last imagery is slightly hyperbolical. I mean, obviously, you're going to remember the past. But the point is, as amazing as the past was at times, and as terrible as it was at times, as amazing as it was, the future is better. Something very dramatic is about to happen. And for these people in, in Isaiah 65, it really means that they will lead a meaningful life without worrying about the oppression of, let's say, the Persians or of other foreign occupying powers. It's a sense that we will be able to, to have a life that makes sense. And so we get in this text uh, a list of things about uh, normal things. They'll build houses and live in them. So no invading armies to cart them away. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build in another inhabit. They will not plant in another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. And my chosen shall enjoy the works of their hands. There is a vision here in the prophet for human flourishing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful vision. And it's one that uh, believers still take very seriously. Because we know that we live in a physical world. We are physical people. We eat and sleep and have children and love our children and love our spouses and all the rest of it. And those are powerful and beautiful things. Uh, to be able to get up in the morning and work in some meaningful way and take care of your family and go to bed at night knowing that you loved them and showed your love to them and they loved you back is a beautiful thing and we should never downplay that or or dismiss that as insignificant it, it is far from insignificant uh, and according to texts like this it is the concern that God also has for human beings and so we get this last line in Isaiah 65 the wolf and the lamb shall feed together the lion shall eat straw, taking us all the way back to near the beginning of the book, the, the vision of the peaceable kingdom. It's not an exact quote, but an allusion uh, to the earlier text. And we have this, we have this sense that uh, the world can be better than it is. And that God's work is attempting to make it better than it is. And human beings get to participate in that work. 
That's also good news today. It's not for nothing that the church gets to listen to a text like this, even though it's written to the ancient Israelites long ago and it addresses very specific challenges they have, probably under the Persian Empire. Uh, it's still a text that captures a broader vision that applies in many times and places, the sense that uh, the ordinary can be the site of God's redemption. We hear that in Psalm 118 as well. O oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And we get all this language about God's triumph, God's victory over the forces of evil, and uh, and the sense of renewal, the celebration, perhaps, of the rebuilding of Jerusalem. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, verse 24. That, that, that today, is, today is something powerful and special. Now, we hear this also in the epistles reading, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. This is a very long discussion that Paul has about the resurrection of the dead. It comes at a strategic and climactic moment in his epistle. If you re remember 1 Corinthians, it starts off by talking about the power of the cross and the need to imitate Christ in his sufferings. And then it goes through a whole litany of problems these people at Corinth have in which all come from the fact that they're not imitating Christ and his sufferings. They, they just want to skip to the glory part. And, and, you know, in this life, it's hard to skip to the glory part without running over people. But that doesn't bother them very much because they're all about the glory part. And Paul has to systematically reconstruct their thinking about their relationships to each other and even their most sacred rituals of the Lord's Supper, especially because they're even there, they, the, the, the sense of rivalry and one-upsmanship is something they can't get away from. So he finally, he gets to 15, sort of cleared away all the rubbish. He's told them to love each other as Christ loves us. And then he talks about the resurrection of the dead. Let's talk about the end game, he says. What's this all about? What it's about is that God is not threatened by the force of death. Death is not a limit to God. It's a barrier for us. It's a painful thing, a sad thing oftentimes, sometimes a very painful thing. And for us, it feels like the end. But God, who remembers human beings, uh, does not see death as an end. And so we have the Christian teaching of the resurrection of the dead. If for this life only we have hoped in Christ, Paul says in 1519 of 1 Corinthians, if in this life we have only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact... Why? Because this life may be pretty hard for us because of our faith. 
But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have who sleep. Since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. First Christ, the first fruits. Then it is coming those who are belonging to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed every ruler, every authority, every power, all the hierarchies of the world, all the pretensions to permanence that we humans have just get wiped away because they're illusions. And then he hands it to the Father. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And he will go on and talk about the transformation of the body and the reception that the believer experiences in Christ. And, and he will say, he will mock death. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? And he says that there isn't any power. Death is defanged and humanity is saved because God has first of all raised Jesus from the dead as the first fruits, the token, the first bit of evidence that the story of human existence that we have constructed for ourselves that we imagine is not quite right because death itself, that inexorable force, is not as powerful as we think. Now he knows this because he has received the story of the resurrection of Christ. That is the Easter story. It's a story the church can hear from all four of the Gospels. This is a place where the four Gospels are very similar to each other. They differ in small details, but the basic outline is the same. So this week we, we might hear John's version, John 20. And I'll I'll leave my comments there. We might also hear Luke's version, which is equally powerful. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, so early Sunday morning before dawn, right around dawn, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed. She ran, went to Peter, I would say she panicked. She went to Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb. Talk about jumping to conclusions. But of course, what else should, could she conclude? She'd never seen anything like this. You say, well, what about, what about Lazarus back in John chapter 11? Okay, but, but that's a one-off and that's unusual. And she's not expecting that to happen to somebody who's just been crucified and brutally murdered. She jumps to conclusions, but understandably so. They stole his body. They wouldn't even leave him the dignity of a decent burial. That's, that's her conclusion. So Peter and ran and the other disciple ran and they come to the tomb and they see the rest of it and, and we know the story. And then they wait because they don't know what to expect next. Mary stayed at the tomb, however. She becomes the first proclaimer of the gospel in just a moment. As she wept, she bent over, she looked in the tomb, she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been lying, one at the head and the other at the feet, and they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord. 
I do not know where they have laid him. You can hear in that one sentence the extraordinary poignancy of the story. This poor woman, broken-hearted, crushed by events far beyond her control, wants to do the only thing she can do, which is to make sure that the body is taken care of properly and given a decent burial. That's all she's asking. That's all she has left. And, and she thinks, even this was taken away from me. What, there's nothing else left at all. Jesus said to her, so the angels in John don't reply. They don't say she, he's risen. Jesus said to her, Mary, Mary, she turned and she said to him, Rabuni, which means teacher. John has to explain what the word means because his audience are people who don't know any Hebrew or Aramaic probably. And he, he says, there's this shock of recognition in which her whole world is completely rewritten. Everything she assumes about reality has to be questioned and re-examined. Much of it will stand up to scrutiny, but much, some of it won't. And she has to really rethink who she is. And then he commissions her, Jesus does. He commissions her to go and bear the news of the, of the gospel. Go tell my brothers. Go tell the apostles. Go tell the ones who rejected me just a few days ago. Go tell the ones who denied that I was had any association with them. Go tell those people I'm ascending to my father. And so she goes and she announces, I have seen the Lord. The Easter story is the core Christian story. Sometimes people ask me, so what, is, what, a, what, what does it mean to be a Christian? You can list a long list of things that Christians do, and, and on almost every part of the list, you find that some Christians do one thing and some Christians do another thing, and there's enormous variety, which you would expect, a 2,000-year-long tradition that now embraces a couple of billion people. Obviously, there's going to be variety. That's not at all surprising. And for the most part, it's just fine. But there is a core, there's a shared commitment, a shared story, and that is this story. This is ground zero. Ground zero is the tomb is empty. And that is good news because that means that the evil we see around us and inside of us does not win in the end. That means that our ignorance, which all of us have, we're all ignorant about some one thing or another, our ignorance doesn't prevail. That means that those who will pursue hatred as a way of life, and those who will help them because they're afraid of conflict, do not win in the end. That means that death itself and all its minions, all its various ways of manifesting itself in the world, cannot triumph in the end. Life prevails. God prevails. Goodness prevails. Christ is risen. It is Easter Sunday. Thanks be to God. 
thank you for listening to this series. May God bless each of you in days ahead. Preaching in Season is a production of the Graduate School of Theology at Abilene Christian University in partnership with the Center for the Study of Ancient Religious Texts. If you're interested in learning more about us and what we do, visit us at acu.edu gst or email us at gst at acu.edu. Until next time.